1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh from Critical Theory Channel. Today I'm honored to be speaking to Professor John Bartley Stewart about a wonderful book he published with Cambridge University Press. The book is called A History of Nihilism in the Nineteenth Century, Confrontations with Nothingness. Dr. John Bartley Stewart is an American philosopher and historian of philosophy, specializes in nineteenth-century continental philosophy with an emphasis. On the thought of Kierkegaard and Hegel, um, John Stewart currently works as a researcher at the Institute of Philosophy at the Slovak Academy of Sciences. John, welcome to New Books at Work. Yeah, thank you so much, Mortez. Thank you for the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, before we start talking about the book, can you briefly introduce yourself and talk about your field of expertise, which is philosophy, and how you became interested in this field? And then also tell us what made you think about the, this book project and why you wrote a book about the history of nihilism in the 19th century?
0: That's, of course, this is, um, as you mentioned, I'm uh, mainly specialized in uh, European philosophy uh, of the 19th and 20th century. And, you know, when I was a, a student, uh, I, I, I had always had the, an, an interest in these questions of, of nihilism and meaning. Uh, and this led me to the, the work of the existentialist writers. Uh, and I, so as a student, I, I, I loved reading uh, Sartre, and uh, Albert Camus, uh, Heidegger, people like this. Uh, and, and was really yeah, quite taken with the way in which they treated this issue of, of you know, the question of meaning in human existence. And then later, I uh, I came to read authors in the 19th century from earlier, and I, I recognized that uh, some of the same motifs and some of the same themes and issues were, were being treated there. And, and so I thought, well, oh, this is interesting. Maybe I should uh, have a look at this more closely. And so this then raised the question in my mind about you
1: know,
0: where exactly did you know, this, this larger philosophical question of nihilism first arise? Did it arise in the 20th century in connection with the World Wars, as some people say? Or was there something else that happened earlier, maybe in the the 18th or the 19th century, that that made this become an important topic? And so, that that was my motivation for uh, doing the book that came out of a a very early interest.
1: And 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 uh, I really love the book in in terms of that you don't you you cover literature you cover philosophy so the sources used are quite uh, wide ranging and that's something we'll talk about as we go ahead. Um, but before that, let's start with some sort of a definition about nihilism. You 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 have six, six aspects for nihilism. I know that we don't have time to go in details through all of them, but maybe you could briefly tell us about these aspects and how you define nihilism, and more importantly, I'd like to know why you focus on the 19th century. Um, yeah, I think it's important in a
0: study like this when when we are so fixed on a certain term that we define it at the beginning so we know what we are talking about, and the, this is particularly important uh, uh, because the term nihilism itself only arose uh, and was, was used regularly towards the end of the 19th century. And so that means some of the authors that are, uh, are treated in the book that come before this, they don't actually use that word, but they're treating that that same issue. So it's important that we identify the meaning first. And so what, what I use is sort of the general meaning is of nihilism. It is simply the idea that there is no ultimate meaning in the world or in human existence. So in Nile, uh, right, just the the Latin word for nothing. And so nihilism, the belief in nothing. So the the idea that the you have no belief in uh, that uh, that there's anything yeah, valuable or meaningful in 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 the world. Right. And I guess everybody has had some kind of an experience of this. It to some degree. Right. And and so the, the why is it we we have those experiences, those feelings? It's that things are useless or meaningless. And I, here I tried to identify at the very beginning of the book, um, just a handful of of reasons for that. And the, the the most obvious one is is death. Everybody fears death, right? If I'm going to die, what's the meaning of my life? And then in connection with this, it's not just my death, but it's also the, the fact that over time, I'm going to be completely forgotten, right? So this fear of being forgotten over time uh, after one's death is also something that I think strikes is, our humanity very deeply. This is something that is very difficult for us to accept, that over a certain period of time, all traces of our existence will be gone, <laughs> um also in connection with this the uh human suffering also a fundamental fact of the human condition right we know that we will suffer in the course of our lives and the question why why do we suffer right what is the meaning of my suffering if my existence is just you know different forms of, of suffering one what, after what could the meaning of this possibly be mm-hmm. um and let's see in another aspect that the 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 philosophers that I treat, for example, Nietzsche identifies atheism as an important aspect of nihilism. So, if on a, a Christian picture God exists, right, well, God's the source of all truth in meaning, and so there's no problem. But if it's the case that God doesn't exist, right, from a nihilistic perspective, this looks like a problem, right? It then where does the truth and meaning come from maybe if god doesn't exist then what are we left with just in a cold empty universe right with without meaning and then connected with this is uh, the idea of uh, a, an ethical or value relativism okay if there's not god there in order to determine what is truth and and what is valuable then uh, all ethical values uh, uh, just go down to uh, each of us as individuals. So we can each pick and choose what we think is right or wrong or viable. But then there seems to be something a little bit hollow uh, about that. And so uh, this is, I think, you know, ethical relatives. And it's very prevalent in our modern world. This is something that I feel like uh, we can identify with quickly. Uh, but it, it shows that there, there's a need for something more Stable than simply to say, okay, you have your opinion, I have my opinion, and there's no, there, there's nothing beyond that, or right? there's something hollow about us just making up our own uh, ideas about these things. So those are the, the the different aspects of nihilism that I try to identify that lead to the, this this sense of uh, meaninglessness uh, or despair about the the world.
1: Yeah. Well, one thing I'm really interested in is the root of modern nihilism. And that, I guess, goes back to my previous question, why you focus on the 19th century. And you make this argument that it is connected, modern nihilism in a way is connected to the rapid development of sciences in, in the Enlightenment period. Uh, c- can you talk about the rise of, let, let's say, modern, sci- sciences and Enlightenment and how it's connected to modern nihilism? Uh, right. The, the, this was... Um...
0: Yeah, really, with the the conclusion that I, I came to after doing research for this book, where the question was, what was it specifically about this period of, of the Enlightenment or the nineteenth century that brought about conditions that made nihilism a problem for people? Right? What was it? And and what I uh, the conclusion I came to after reading all of these authors and and seeing the many motifs that they used to describe nihilism it had to do with the development of the sciences at the time. And everybody knows, uh, for example, the, the, the story uh, of going back before this, right, going back to the Renaissance with Copernicus, right, and his his theory about the heliocentric universe that replaced the geocentric universe. So. In earlier times, in medieval times, right, you have the idea that the Earth is the center of the universe, and it makes perfect sense given the you know, the Christian worldview at the time that the Earth would occupy a very special place because this is where God has uh, uh, chosen to create human life. And so, the idea that the Earth is not at the middle and said it's the Sun that's at the middle, this caused like a, a real problem for the for the Church, right, because it, it seemed to displace that. Sp- the earth from that special privileged position so this is all of course from an earlier period but that that basic idea of the development of science having an important impact on human self-understanding in their role uh, in the universe this was something that was also continuing at at a quite accelerated pace into the enlightenment Uh, the uh, displacement of the centrality of of human beings. Uh, And so uh, just very quickly, I I can mention a couple of examples of this with regard to just the, the size of the universe, even for Copernicus, the universe was 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 quite small, right? It was it was really just our our, our solar system, right? And it was thought that the, the stars were fixed <laughs> above us on on some some firmament. But it was only at the beginning of the 18th century that the Edmund Haley realized that well, the stars weren't fixed, but in in fact they're at differing distances in, in space, uh, and this raised a, an entirely different picture about what the universe is and that well, maybe those different s- stars are actually yeah, you know, just suns that we're seeing at a a greater distance and so w- with this idea the yeah the the, uh, the space the distance of the universe just, uh, was suddenly expanded enormously it wasn't just about our solar system but it was uh, the universe was, was far larger than human beings had imagined and human life our Earth became much smaller in that regard with respect to uh, the the universe as a whole and the the same developments So that, that was with Edmund Haley in the the, in the the middle of the the 18th century and around the same time we, we see similar scientific developments which called into question the the temporal framework of the universe and at this time in the 17th century, it was thought that the, the universe was created maybe at around 4000 BC or something like that. God has created the, the entire universe, and the biblical story is, is more or less how this works. And then at this time in the 17th century, scholars, they were scientists, they, they started to notice the sediment patterns uh, that indicated that there were large bodies of water that which were located far inland and so they can find like a a shark's tooth on top of a mountain somewhere and then must they infer from this okay this whole area must have been underwater a long time ago and so from this they they calculate okay if that were the case how long would it have taken the waters to recede Uh, if uh, what comes out of this is a calculation that means the earth must be far far older than just those 6,000 years. And so once again, we have the same step that suddenly the the human sphere becomes much shorter, much less significant than what it used to be in, in the older picture. And so those are just two brief examples, but there's many, many scientific discoveries during this time in the Is 17th, 18th century, where with each new step, the science in one way or another has an an influence on the way humans understand themselves and the world around them. And with each new discovery, the significance of human existence seemed to be diminished in some way. Yeah, and so if if this is the case this is what gives rise to this idea of of nihilism mm-hmm. we're becoming less and less significant we're, we're human the value of humanity of our lives individually is 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 ultimately meaningless if the world is is so large or, or has existed for such a, a
1: long long time mm-hmm. and and uh another part of the book that I uh, aspect of the book that I was very interested in was that you don't confine this discussion of nihilism to a few countries or like the england or germany you talk about a wide range of countries in europe you even talk about in europe uh, and also um uh, sorry in europe and the west you also talk about russia so the question i have is that so why my understanding was that before reading the book was that maybe this concept is in a way, if you're talking about the rise of modern sciences, it's a few countries that we need to be discussing. But apparently nihilism wasn't confined to one geographical location. It was sort of widespread in Europe and the West. It would be great if we could talk about that aspect of the book. Yeah, of course. I think
0: that yeah, when we talk about the problem of nihilism, In a certain sense, it really is a a fundamental human problem, the question of meaning. I mean, it's not one that's really can be clearly defined to a specific period. In in the the book, I quote many uh, authors from the ancient world, for example, who express uh, different sentiments that you can regard as nihilistic, right? The the famous... uh, line from uh, Ecclesiastes, all is vanity, right? So that that everybody knows. And this is from an ancient text. And so in that sense, you you could say, all right, to pick a certain period, uh, a little bit arbitrary, since this is a fundamental human problem. Uh, But what I tried to show is that uh, when we talk about the modern phenomenon of nihilism, that there really were specific social and historical cultural conditions at this period at the end of the 18th and the beginning of the 19th century, which made this a problem for a larger group of people than it had ever been before. And so that's why I define this as a sort of a European phenomenon in terms of the, because it was connected to the European historical period of the Enlightenment and the uh, Enlightenment's value on the development of science. And with this development, you you really did have a a new worldview uh, which arose, that uh, what we call today the secular worldview, that there's a picture of the universe that is governed by just uh, physical uh, forces and natural scientific laws, uh, uh, a universe uh, that where, where god if he existed at all plays a, a very minimal role and th- this was i think a shocking picture for people at the time uh in the in the 19th century when they were trying to digest this because scholars academics of course they wanted to believe in that enlightenment picture they wanted to be you know, good scientists and scholars but yet the conclusion of that seemed to be well if all of the science is true there, then what are we left with? This 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 godless universe where that's completely indifferent to our human interests. And this is a, a chilling realization. And so the, the question is, how, how do you reconcile that? Do you give up on the science and say, no, I just want to go back to this traditional belief uh, system, uh, or do I go ahead and say I'm going to agree with science but then I have to accept these results which uh, m- make it very difficult for me to to live my life right because I, they seem to lead to to despair and you know, the, the sense of, of meaningless meaninglessness and so yeah I, I feel like the this connection the, the phenomenon of modern nihilism is, is really connected uh, in a specific to a specific uh, geographical place and time that is in uh Europe of the the late 18th early 19th century in connection with
1: the results of the the Enlightenment and and another aspect I'm really like was that I again and I think that's what also our listeners or anybody who comes across the book might think that it's a history of nihilism and it's only about philosophy but you talk about some really famous plays novels uh so you you talk about other films, such as literature So nihilism apparently wasn't only a philosophical issue but it was in other fields as well such as literature am i am i right to assume that
0: yeah that's right that's that's really what i um one of the important aspects of the book that i tried to uh, to to bring out many books on on nihilism right they 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 talk about uh, well-known philosophers like say schopenhauer or nietzsche and they treat it really just as a a philosophical question but what I tried to show in my book is that, that that's not really the case, that in fact, uh, yeah, since this was a much wider you know, social and historical phenomenon, that it was Expressed in many other you know, forms of writing as well, and if you look, what was really a surprise to me, if you look at the the literary texts of the period, the 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 novels, the the poetry, the dramatic work, it, it, it's really quite prevalent. the the, the These uh, other authors are are not known as philosophers. They're treating what we regard today as a philosophical problem by means of their literature, and what I found particularly interesting is this is their their treatments of it are, are in some ways more compelling than the, the philosophical analysis. So what I mean by that is if you read a philosophical essay or an article today on nihilism, it will say you know, something like what I just said, nihilism is the belief that there's you know, no truth or meaning in the, the, the world and we can all understand that. But it's it's something quite different to, to see that portrayed in a literary way when we see characters struggling with like the the death of their loved ones or the the, these really fundamental human questions it brings home to us in a in a very personal way uh this question of meaning right so it's it's not just a philosophical problem right i think it's a it's a human problem that you know each and every one of us has to to deal with in some way and so I, i was really happy to add that dimension to the book uh, the 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 that literary side of it because I think that really does help us to understand something about the yeah the zeitgeist of, of the period and and how nihilism played quite a, a central role in the the thinking of not just philosophers but of many different people from different places and with different interests at the time and the the one common denominator that you have in those into those literary accounts is that they, they, the way in which this is portrayed is very often has something to do with the sciences,
1: a certain scientific picture of the universe. So one aspect of the book that I'm really interested in is, as I mentioned, is the wide range of texts that you include. So one, one, let's talk about some of these authors now. You talk about oh. Jean-Paul and how he envisioned, uh, envisioned of nihilism as, a, as absence of God. So that would be great if you could talk about him and what he meant by what was his definition of nihilism? Let's say,
0: right? Why, John Paul, he um, he doesn't really use the word nihilism so explicitly, but he does talk about yeah, you know, a there's like an atheistic worldview, and and this is something that really terrifies him, and he he really thinks that if you believe. Uh, Thoroughly, completely, in this this atheistic worldview that there is no God, there is no immortality, and it's just impossible for you to live your life because that is such a just a, a crushing thought, right? That uh, you would just be deprived of any motivation to do anything. And he, I think he's a he's a great example of of, of how, what I was just talking about of a literary author who can portray the problem of nihilism in a way that is far more compelling than than any philosopher could. <laughs> so in the one of the the texts that I, I treat in the book uh, he he gives a, the a, a, an account of a dream in which the the narrator uh, you know, wakes up and yeah you know, sees all of these apocalyptic things and he sees uh, uh, Jesus Christ coming down from the heavens and Christ says that there is no God you know so all of the dead souls that come out of their their graves and emerge from the tombs. Right, he has a beautiful way of uh, describing this, and Christ explains how he's uh, been throughout the entire universe, and that there there is no God in this vastness of, of space and time. And in the end, uh, he he witnesses the the destruction of all, you know, all of the planets and the stars and the galaxies, and it's really just a horrific apocalyptic vision that John Paul presents there, and. He does it in the form of a, a like a, a dream, uh, in in order to I think shock the reader's instinct to say, okay, can we really go along with this picture? Right, this is the result of a natural scientific view, and the way in which he describes the universe of you know of these these stars and galaxies and space, he just gives it very. Natural scientific account of of the universe in the way in which one would in astronomy, right? And so he's he seems to want to be a scientist at that point, right? But to say right, you, you you simply cannot go along with the conclusion there that there is no God, there is no immortality, the universe will just end in nothingness because that that thought is just too terrible to live with. Uh, and the way in which he describes it is, is is really powerful and, and very disturbing and i yeah, I can only recommend this text to yeah you know, to the the auditors here that the the dead Christ proclaims that there is no God is the name of this uh, short text by john Paul that i I think is is really quite moving. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, another uh, text that you talk about, and I did not know uh, that text myself. So it's a play called The Night Watches by August Klinger, Klinger, Klingerman, if I'm pronouncing the name correctly. So how does who is he and how does he depict this absurd and insane world in his play? Yeah, yeah.
0: Klingerman, was, uh, um, he's not a very well-known figure today. He's certainly not. Yeah, a big person in, in uh, German literature. I mean, only if you're a specialist for German literature might you have heard of him. He's a a uh, primarily a figure in uh, German drama. He he was a director of a of a theater in the town of Braunschweig, and he he wrote you know, a, quite a number of of plays and dramatic pieces, and a, a few novels uh and he also has a philosophical background he he when he was a student he he studied with some of the the biggest philosophers of the time uh fichte and schelling at the university of jena and yeah Klingemann in in his uh novel the night watches he he really presents a a powerful picture of uh, a nihilistic world and uh, he gives us a great character sketch uh, of a a night watchman whose name is, uh, Kreutzgang. And so this night watchman, you know, he goes out in the night and he observes, you know, different things that happen in the town that, uh, he's responsible for. And the, so we have these different episodes, uh, uh, these different tableaus where, where he describes what's going on. And, and the, the, there's really a kind of a, a scary gothic feel about it because uh, all of the action is taking place at nights and he's he's like peeping through keyholes and, and seeing things from from a distance and it, the world that that he presents is it, it's a a frightening one uh, in the sense that there he sees many examples of this terrible human cruelty and, and suffering uh to the lives of ordinary people but it, i think in in contrast to To John Paul where the uh, where that's all you have right it's this terrible horrifying vision that is supposed to scare you into you know a return to a traditional (laughs) Christian faith but instead for for there's a a a socially critical uh, element here which is in some places quite humorous that if it's the case that the world is just meaningless and all of our activities and our Lives, our projects are meaningless. And people who who put on airs and pretend that what they're doing is very important, or that they're better than other people, those those people start to look a little bit silly, right? That <laughs> they have no reason to take themselves so seriously or to invest such value in in the silly jobs that they're doing, because in the end, that doesn't really matter anyway. And so, uh, an important yeah, aspect uh, of Klingerman's yeah, no- novel, The Night Watchers, is, is that social criticism. Where he he really has a, a wonderful eye for human folly, right, and the ways in which we we try to make ourselves and our lives important. And he, he uh, through the eyes of yeah, this night watchman, he, he's able to see the the hollowness of human existence and to point out the, these different absurdities of, of uh, human society that in a way we, we need in order to make society work. But but ultimately, the, the, these are just sort of lies that we make up to ourselves in order for yeah, society to function. But in the end, that uh, it's not really true. There, there, it's not the case that by having a certain social position or a certain job that you know, I suddenly have a, a, an importance or a value that I didn't have before. <laughs> And so the, I think there, there's a certain human wisdom, her, an important human
1: perspective, and it comes out in the night watches. Uh, I, I guess from the authors that you discuss in the book, uh, Schopenhauer is the uh, more famous one compared to August, August uh, Klingerman that we just, we just talked about. So let's talk about him a little bit. He has a theory of will. Which he considers to be a fundamental metaphysical principle of the universe. What what is that theory of will? Yes, Schopenhauer's theory of will
0: it really it comes out very clearly in his most famous book, "The World is Will and Representation." Is that he thinks that everything that exists in the universe is striving forever in order to try to gain uh, satisfaction or fulfillment but is never really ultimately able to do so and and so here he's thinking about yeah you know, things like you know, plants or animals which which need just the basic things like nourishment or water or sunlight uh, in order to continue their existence or so of course human beings as well right we're we're a bundle of needs, right? We, we need certain basic things in order to continue to exist, right? We have to eat, we have to sleep, we have to drink, right? We have other sorts of physical drives that need fulfillment. And so that this is what Hegel, or what Hegel, what Schopenhauer calls the will, or the will to live. In order to exist, right, we, we have to always be trying to satisfy these uh these basic needs but the the trick is we can't right the, as soon as we satisfy them they, they always come back and so we're, we're we're constantly in this this struggle and that's what the human condition is and that's the the fundamental if you will metaphysical principle of the universe this uh this constant striving the constant
1: will to live and how, how did he define suffering he He's usually associated with nihilism as so well but how did he define suffering and what was the solution he put forth to uh human suffering if if he did put any solution
0: yeah well if if his theory of the will is correct that the, the, this is the fundamental principle then suffering is simply yeah that that form of existence whereby we we have these needs and drives that we're trying to fulfill uh, and so I'm suffering when I'm very hungry and I, I can't find something to eat or I'm very thirsty, I can't find something to drink. And that I'm I'm constantly, in one way or another, trying to fulfill those those basic needs, but yet uh, they're they, I can't do that automatically. The world offers resistance to me and so I have to go out and work to, to find the things that I need to satisfy my needs um but the the problem is uh, so in a sense since uh, during all that time where i'm trying to work to fulfill them i'm i'm suffering because they're not fulfilled and then what i do finally when i'm hungry i get something to eat and i am satisfied for a while right a few hours but then my hunger returns once again and so i, I i'm never at a position where i'm completely yeah, uh, I can be completely relaxed and satisfied over a longer period and, and so th- this is really the fundamental constant in my life is this suffering in terms of uh, trying to yeah, fulfill our basic needs. And so Schopenhauer, his his proposal is, okay, well, what do we do about this? This is, this is the, the way we're programmed by nature, right? There's not much we can do. He says, well... But let's look at what the the source of the problem is. It's the the will, which is always striving towards fulfillment. If we can focus our efforts there and to try to stop that, uh, that basic uh, striving from from happening uh, by, say, renouncing our our will or resigning ourselves to try to achieve a state where our our will doesn't play that, that kind of a role, then, uh, perhaps it would be possible to have a, a a a peaceful life, if you will, without this striving. And so the model he has in mind here is that of an aesthete, an, an, uh, an ascetic person, uh, and here he he gives many examples from like the 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 Hindus, the Buddhist uh, uh, ascetic practices, but also Christian saints. Uh, and the idea is that these are people who who renounce the the, the physical pleasures, the physical needs and drives and desires, and, and to try to neutralize the will as as much as possible. This means yeah, living, for for example, a life of chastity, or living in in poverty, or engaging in fasting, or even self torture. So, uh, and and this is uh, these disciplinary practices are all. Aimed at extinguishing the will, and by doing this, extinguishing the the suffering that that comes with it. And so, that, this is Schopenhauer's idea of uh, how uh, you know we we can best manage this this fundamental fact about the universe that we are suffering. Just renounce the the, the this, this will, and to do these these exercises and practices in order to to help us to repress it. Now, the the question is. Uh, of course, can this really be done? <laughs> I mean, mm. At some point, we do need to eat and drink and sleep, right? You, you, you can never do this completely. I know even the, the, the person with the iron will uh, who, who does these exercises regularly is still at some point going to yeah, have this problem of, of striving. And so Schopenhauer, at the end, he he does seem to concede this point that, okay, this is the best we can do. In our mortal lives but ultimately yeah the uh, that that will is is always going to to be there
1: to a a greater or a lesser extent Mm. Uh, there is another writer you talk about and again he's one of those authors i had i did not know before reading the book uh george or gorg uh Again, I'll leave the pronunciation to you. Right, I don't really know how to pronounce it, Buchner or again Buckner. I don't know. He wrote a play called *Danton's Death*. Uh, so let's tell us who he was and um, how did he depict nihilism here? And I think uh, he, he he used French Revolution as a backdrop for his for depicting nihilism. So that would be an interesting thing for uh, to talk about.
0: Yeah, uh, Georg Buchner is also a, a lesser known figure in the in german literature uh, he 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 died fairly early so he didn't write a, a large number of things that's one of the reasons he's not known so well uh, he was associated at the time with um was was active in uh, at the what was at the time radical uh, politics uh, struggling against the 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 restoration uh, uh, in in europe at the time his He's quite a radical author in, in many ways. Uh, this this play that he wrote, Danton's Death, uh, which um, was published in 1835, uh, it really does give a, a powerful uh, picture of, of nihilism. Uh, he, he In order to write the play, he did a lot of uh, historical research on the French Revolution. Uh, and so all of the characters in the play are are uh, actual revolutionary figures or historical figures uh, that, that you know, would have been known to his audience at the, at the time, uh, and of course the main protagonist is the the revolutionary George Danton, uh, who was an important historical figure, and the the piece takes place in uh, in it covers a period of about two weeks uh, that lead up to the execution uh, by guillotine of, of Danton and and his his faction and so the the piece takes place during the french revolution uh, during what what's called the, the what we know historically as the the reign of terror that is the, the time in which the the so-called committee of public safety was represented by the provisional government in france and this was led by these infamous figures uh, robespierre and saint just and so it was during this this time of the Reign of Terror, where yeah, the politic uh, this Committee of Public Safety was basically yeah, getting rid of, of all of its critics and all of its opponents. This is the period when many uh, many people were were executed, uh, imprisoned, uh, uh, and th- this is the time in which uh, Danton, who represents sort of the the moderate faction, he's trying to stop this and trying to. Uh, Give the the revolution a more humane face here in in the face in 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 this context, and then he's portrayed by the the Jacobins that is Robespierre and Saint Just as a traitor to the revolution because he's urging them not to go on with these 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 terrible yeah persecutions and executions, and so the this this forms an interesting background for the the question of nihilism because. Yeah, here, here we have a, a situation where the the audience knows that basically all of these characters are going to be executed and they're going to die in a short period of time, right? And, and so, and they themselves are aware of this 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 constant danger. And so, the, this is a one of the motifs in the play all the time that uh, that, that they're in constant danger; they could be executed at at any time. And it's it's a really a cruel, inhumane world, which is uh, which is portrayed there the death is everywhere the suicide is really quite a, an important motif uh, and this raises the question what's the meaning of it all right and so uh, the, the uh, Bushner presents many really insightful dialogues with uh, between Danton and his his followers or uh, with him and his wife. In which they, they raise this question of, of meaning, right? What's the meaning of human existence? What was the meaning of the revolution, right? What's the meaning of these human values at all? In the end, it's all going to you know, turn to nothing if we're all going to, to die just in a week's time or something like this. And so it's sort of a depressing picture, actually, of a human society, and uh, it leads to corruption and hypocrisy and. Vice and all sorts of um, uh, human misery. Uh, in, in the end, when, when downtown goes, go and his followers are, are executed, I mean, it, it really is a, a, a kind of a horrific picture uh, that that is presented to us. So there's nothing like at the yeah. end where you know, there's no happy end. Right <laughs> after you finish the, the the piece, you you feel like there you have some closure or whatever. Is, the the thing is is really just a a terrible account of suffering. And and so in this sense, I think it's very much in line with, uh, say, for example, Schopenhauer's idea of uh, the principle of suffering in in human existence, that we are born to suffer and we die. (laughs) The, 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 The socially critical aspect that we saw in in Klingerman's novel, right, But These values that hold society together are ultimately hypocritical and are, are, are based on on, on lies. And it's, it, I think this is a really a insightful perspective on human society uh, that that brings out many of the you know, the nihilistic motifs that I think were were typical of the time.
1: And. Uh... You you talk about Hegel as well, but 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 you talk through, through about him through a character Paul Martin Muller who came to the conclusion that Hegel's philosophy doesn't have a theory of immortality, and therefore it leads to nihilism. Uh, how, how is that? Can you talk about that, please? Right, uh, and people might wonder,
0: well, why was that such an issue? Who cared <laughs> at this time during the the eighteenth? 18th- 30s and 1840s that Hegel's philosophy was, was quite important in in Germany. Uh, Hegel dies in 1831, and his students uh, were uh, they created the so called Hegel schools of right and left Hegelianism. The right who wanted to say Hegel was a a pious Protestant Christian right, and he represented these traditional values. And the left said, no, he wasn't actually. He, he was quite critical of Christianity, and so. Yeah, this really formed the the, the center of the, the philosophical discussion during this time in the eighteen thirties and forties, uh, and so the people on the right that they they were criticized because the the critics they said, well, look, Hegel, how could he be a Christian? He doesn't have a theory of immortality, right? And so the people on the right they had to say, well, yeah, yes, he does. Wait, and and so they they tried one after another to to present different sorts of theories that uh, they. They felt like we're consistent with Hegel's theory, or that we're there implicitly in Hegel's theory. And Paul Martin Muller looks at this material and says, oh, This is absurd, right? None of this is in Hegel, right? These people are just adding something to it, which is not there in, in the text itself. And so this is quite a a serious criticism that that he has there is uh, the, uh, on, on its own terms, because he, he he's agreeing in a certain sense with the the left Hegelians that Hegel no he he wasn't this pious Protestant that the right Hegelians make him out. But he even goes a step further and says, no, I mean uh, on this Hegelian picture, this is actually the cause of. Yeah, the, the the problem of nihilism that we have today. And, and this is really doubly shocking to to the audience at the time. I mean, how, how could that be? And he says, well, you don't have a picture of uh, personal immortality in Hegel. What you have is perhaps the idea that Hegel is this, this concept of spirit, right? The spirit of humanity, which is developing over the course of, of world history. And this is the spirit of yeah, different. You could have the talk about the spirit of a nation uh, uh, is a, a part of this, and also a universal human spirit. And so he thinks that that's where you you find an, an ultimate truth, something like you know the the spirit of, of of God or something like that, which endures over time. But that that's not much of a consolation to you or me as individuals, because well, we we might participate in that while we're living, but that's not a Individual immortality for for any of us, right? it, it doesn't it doesn't offer us any comfort in that sense, and so that that's what Muller points out that yeah, well, if if we have no real idea of individual immortality, then we're we're going to lose our motivation to do anything at all, and so he he tries he goes through very systematically these different spheres of human life and shows well if you don't believe in individual immortality then what's your motivation for getting up in the morning what is your self-image right you're, you're not going to be motivated to do anything at all you're, you're going to have such a negative view of yourself as just a transitory animal in the world right that, that you'll lose all motivation for doing anything and if that's your view of other people or of society why would you yeah, have any motivation to to work hard to improve things in society or to make a contribution to society right if you really believe this then you know why would you know what's your uh, motivation to believe that anything is true or valuable in in society and, and he goes through this very systematically and tries to show that yeah, you know, the the consequences of this picture are, are actually uh, entirely destructive right if you if you really believe that uh there is no personal immortality as was the case with john paul right then uh, all of the your life just doesn't make sense right you you have to he thinks and john paul thinks right, you have to maintain that belief even if it doesn't make sense in terms of science in order to live your life you have to think that there there must be some higher truth or value uh, in and that you yourself are immortal and that yeah, that, uh,
1: that raises a lot of interesting questions philosophically. And uh, another famous philosopher you talk about in the book is Krikkegaard and mm-hmm. how he considered romantic irony to be a form of nihilism. But maybe it's 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 helpful to start with the definition of romantic irony and what he meant by that and why he considered that to be a form of nihilism.
0: Yeah, right, to... Yeah, we, we should mention that the uh, Soren Kierkegaard was a, a student of Paul Martin Müller, uh, and so he was naturally influenced by what Müller had to say um, about nihilism. And so, in in Kierkegaard's book, the, the concept of irony from eighteen forty one, he he explores this issue of uh, romantic irony, uh, which is a which I argue in the book is a form of of, of nihilism. I and mean, what, what does he mean by romantic irony? He gets into discussions of the German Romantics, uh, quite a number of them are rather detailed discussions we don't need to go into, but the idea is something like this, that the the Romantics were were uh, social critics, right? They looked at society around them, at bourgeois society and traditional values. They were critical of that. They have, this, this is just absurd, right? This has no real basis, uh, and so they they, they criticized error <laughs> i mean uh, and they and a part of their criticism they they, they used irony uh, in order to uh, as a as a tool um, uh, against the traditional values and so by using irony like right, you, you're sort of pretending to go along with something right yes of course that's the you know the traditional, that's the right way to do things but you don't really mean it right what you, you what you actually are doing is undermining it but uh, you're pretending to go along with it, and and so uh, uh, Kierkegaard sees this, uh, on my interpretation, as is, is sort of a nihilistic picture because it's a, a completely negative force. Uh, it can undermine the legitimacy of well, any institution or or custom or, or belief um uh, but it it doesn't really build anything positive right you can be you can ironize or criticize any anything at all uh, but the what, what keyword is missing here is sort of, there's no uh, really uh, uh, distinctions made among the the romantics they, they, they're, they're critical of everything that has to do with traditional bourgeois life and values. They're uh, in, in thinks, Well, all right, there are certainly things in the social order that are worthy of criticism. Right? Absolutely. Um, we should look to reform those. But there are also other things which are OK, right? That they're rational and reasonable. We should go along with them. And so he thinks that the romantics are sort of nihilistic in the sense that they, they want to criticize everything and not Respect certain things which uh, should be respected, and which uh, should maintain their their validity. Uh, and so the yeah romantic irony he takes to be really a, a, a denial of the, the truth and the validity of this, this yeah the social world of of actuality, and he thinks that this is dangerous because of course it leads to to relativism and nihilism. Right? The the romantics they. They end up in this position that well, they feel like they can make up their own individual you know, radical values and truths for for themselves. But all right, this is, this is a very really that's at the very definition of what relativism is. Each of us has our own yeah truth and value, but none of us has any real foundation for that. so this is what he tries to yeah. You know, discuss uh, critically in the, the, the second part of his book the, the concept of irony and I, I, I think that this is also a nice um, picture that he gives us of uh, uh, of the, the issue of nihilism in in his time
1: uh, and uh, again like I said at the beginning I studied literature myself so I was really intrigued by a chapter uh, about Ivan Turgenev and how he depicts nihilism as a generational conflict and again like i said at the beginning uh a fascinating part of the book is how widespread it is you talk about germany france and then you also cover russia here so it would be great if you could talk about nihilism as generational conflict
0: yeah right the, yeah this uh Durganyev is a really quite an important figure in in this story because it, he was the the one who really made the the, the term nihilism itself famous right because and this was a term which was associated with a specific uh, social or intellectual movement at the time, the Russian nihilists uh, in the 1850s, 1860s or so, uh, who were like a radical, like anarchistic, uh, revolutionary figures at the time in Turgenev and his Novel Fathers and Sons from 1862. He gives a portrayal of this, and he he gives us a just a, a, a wonderful character sketch uh, of a young nihilist uh, uh, by the name of uh Bazarov. and he 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 brings this character into a dialogue with uh two older gentlemen from from the earlier generation right, from the generation of the enlightenment and so the the the, the older men they they feel like they're progressive-minded that right? they've read the enlightenment thinkers they believe in enlightenment science right They're uh, they support for example the emancipation of the the, the serfs which took place at this time right, in 1861 and so in their minds they're the very Progressive-minded people, right? They're they're not in any way the reactionaries, but for the the for Bazarov, and in, in fact, the, the, these guys are, are still just hopelessly reactionary and bourgeois, and and he he shocks them with with his views that uh, about the the, the uh, yeah their hypocrisy and the, their insistence on this aristocratic uh, way of life and on uh, social classes and things like this. Uh, and this, I think, Turgenev really captures beautifully this uh, conflict between two different generations, two different worldviews. Um, you know, the one worldview of enlightenment, sort of science, and then the, the this, this the second generation, of, which is also following in that view. So. Um, yeah, Bazarov himself—he's a, a student of medicine, so he believes in in, in science, uh, but yet he, he's he's super critical of the social order and wants to destroy everything, right? And that—that's the thing that the older gentlemen of the, the earlier generation just can't understand at all. Well, okay, yes, we need reform, but. We, well, what are you saying? We, you, you want to just destroy everything? Yes, absolutely right. And they, they just can't fathom this. It just seems uh, absurd to them. Okay, well, what are you going to replace that with after you destroyed everything? Well, we don't know yet. We'll get to that when we do. And this, this seems to them uh, just to be com- completely implausible as is, is a position. But... I think this this really captures something of the spirit of of that nihilist movement at the time. that was very engaged in the, the social political issues at the time. It was very attentive to the uh, social injustices in, in Russia at the time, and so this. Yeah, this presents an, an, an interesting dimension uh, in in this discussion of nihilism in in the century, in the nineteenth century, because it really does focus fairly squarely on the the, the political side of things. There, there seems to be you know, like the nihilism is a, a negative political program is <laughs> uh, quite a, an intriguing thing that we we can see in uh, Turgenev's depiction.
1: Uh, and let uh, one of the most famous philosophers, Nietzsche, and his ideas of nihilism. So, uh, you, you talk about his key cosmo- cosmological values that we need to abandon in the stage of nihilism. What did he mean by that?
0: Right. I think we often think of Nietzsche, uh, we, we think of his famous slogan, you know, that God is dead, and we think that this is just, you know, sort of a simple thought, all right, if God doesn't exist and everything else is, uh, yeah, the, like, truth and value doesn't exist either. But but Nietzsche was very was really insightful. He said, well, it's not quite that simple. If, if God doesn't exist, it's, it's not just God Himself, but it, it's many different ways in which we have become accustomed to think right? Uh, that it's not, uh, our belief system, it's not a, it doesn't operate with just different isolated episodic beliefs, but instead that they're interconnected in many different ways. And the, the Judeo-Christian conception of the universe, that, that it's a complex of, of different belief systems. And so what Nietzsche is saying, we can remove God, but we, we're still in our minds, even the atheist is going to have many different beliefs, which are dependent upon that earlier belief system, that we also need to give up. And so we, this is what he talks about when he, he refers to the key cosmological values. And he he mentions here um, three of these. The the one is the idea that there is a, a purpose or a goal in the universe or mm-hmm. in human existence. Right. A, at the time, I Clearly, a, a well-known motif, right? Many of the German philosophers believe that yeah, history was moving forward in a progressive way. It was going to reach a, an, an end, a, a classless society, for example, uh, uh, the reach some state where, where all human fulfillment would be made possible through science and scientific development. Nietzsche thinks oh, that uh, we. This is an idea that is connected to the. the conception of God. We need to give it up, right? That There there is no development in human society or in human history. There's no goal that we're working for, right? This is just human beings in in the flux, in the void of the universe. And the the second value that he (laughs) mentions is the the idea that the universe constitutes some sort of a unity or a coherent system, right? That the, the it seems like I, this is a difficult one to give up isn't it isn't all of science based on this idea that there we we have a, the universe is a system which is interconnected we try to just determine what the the rules are for the way in which the different parts of the system hang together and Nietzsche's an argument no it's not the only principle is that there there is change right that there is flux that there, everything is in in motion and everything is constantly changing but there there's no Coherence in this, there, there, there's no unity in, in this whatsoever. And, and so, that this again, that he, he thinks that it's a prejudice of our thinking to believe that there is some coherent system that he thinks that this belongs to the, this earlier worldview that is, is no longer relevant anymore. And the, the third of these is that, uh, yeah, the, the very notion of truth itself, we have to give up. He thinks that this is also something that's connected to the yeah, the the Christian worldview that's failed, right? If God doesn't exist, then yeah, who's to say what's what's true and what's not true? And so the, all that we have, we don't we have to give up the idea of a a God's eye view of things, and the, all that we have are, are our own individual perceptions and perspectives. Uh, that, that we each have, but that there, there's no overarching objective truth beyond all of that. And so here's the leads a little bit to the that relativistic side of, of Nietzsche. He calls perspectivism. Uh, each of us have a, a different perspective on things, but there's there's no really deeper grounding to this. And so so Nietzsche, I, I think he's, he's thought through this problem a little bit more carefully than maybe Some of the other article uh, authors that we've been talking about—it's—it's not. I think he shows correctly. It's not just a question about, yeah, the immortality of the soul, which John Paul or Paul Muller was concerned with. It's not just a question about the existence of God, but there are many other aspects that are even more fundamental to human thought, which are involved in that that picture of of the universe and that. Once we give up those ideas, uh, the, the the goal of existence, a unity of existence, or the, the truth itself, then it, it's very difficult to really navigate yourself in the world. That, that <laughs> you feel like the, the 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 rug has been taken from under your feet. You, those those are fundamental beliefs which he thinks belong to that picture that we need to 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 rethink, and that the. Ultimately, those ideas of goal and unity and truth are are simply uh, yeah, illusions or lies that we tell to ourselves, but they're, they're, they're so ingrained in our fundamental intuitions, it's, it's difficult for us to, to get rid of them. So I, I think I, by extending the idea of nihilism to those things, I, I think that he has a, a very insightful <laughs> understanding of <the> human psychology. <laughs>
1: And um, I was really interested in the line you draw from uh, 19th century nihilism to 20th century existentialism. And at the beginning when you were introducing yourself, you talked about how you were interested in existentialism as well. So uh, it would be uh, good to know the key elements of existentialism that were sort of foreshadowed by the 19th century nihilism.
0: Yeah, right. I think there, there were a, a number of these, and this, this was really the initial inspiration for for the book. Uh, if we look at you know, what other twentieth-century existentialists say that, uh, about this issue, uh, they uh, people like Sartre. I mean, he begins his whole system with this idea that that we have to recognize the a world without god a world which the fundamental principle is nothingness it's a basic principle of existence right that there's no real values out there that our existence presupposes any value that we might have and so whatever values we have we we have to make up for ourselves and so his, his fundamental point of departure is 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 that of of nihilism in in that sense and i i think that the 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 idea that we have to to face that <laughs> that picture with a, a certain sort of a reflectivity and, and not run back to a, a retreat back to a traditional uh, view, which would give us a uh, make us feel more comfortable or happier about life. Right when we, have, um, the, I think that that that's something that uh, is anticipated by a, a, a number of the the authors that uh, that are treated in in the book. Right? We have we probably see this most clearly in. In Nietzsche, right, where he really does make this claim about uh, the need for intellectual honesty, in, in, in our times, so you, uh, he, he's very critical of um, these Christian authors, uh, like somebody like John Paul, uh, who would sort of uh, would recognize the the scientific advances of the time, but then still want to recur back to a. You know, these christian dogmas about the existence of god or immortality things it just doesn't fit together right? i mean if you if you're going to accept a, a you know, the, the modern scientific world then you have to accept the, those consequences no matter how difficult they are so it's a, a plea for you know, what the existentialists call authenticity right you, you have to be authentic with yourself you have to be honest with with yourself and not continue to perpetuate the yeah, what they regard as a, sort of the lies of uh, civilized life, right? Things that we make our society hold together, the lies that we tell ourselves to make our own lives appear important or, or meaningful. This is, I think, the, this it's called this like the recognition of the nothingness or of authenticity, where some of these authors really do anticipate, uh, you know, 20th century existentialism. Um, and another important motif that the existentialists make a lot of is, of course, the idea of freedom. If if I realize that, okay, God is dead, right, that I'm not constrained by traditional truths or values, admit, I'm completely free. I, I don't need to conform to what the society dictates, right? I, I can strike out on my own path and, and do what I think is uh, the right thing to do. We, we can see this in uh, some of the authors which uh, are, are treated here uh, as well that there there's a a kind of a liberating effect here in a, in a certain sense although some of the the nihilist characters who are portrayed are they, they looked at as they're outsiders right because they don't conform to the values of society on on some uh, on another aspect of this is there's also a, a portrayed as a something heroic, something positive about this a character like um, Turgenev's Bazarov um, right? He, he he enjoys a certain freedom, right? That the people from the older generation don't enjoy because they are obliged to conform to you know, the older traditions and, and customs, whereas he is able to do exactly what he wants and to say exactly what, what he wants. And so in, in this regard, uh, I, I think that this existentialist hero or the existentialist revolt against um, you know, the social norms is is very useful <laughs> yeah and I think a, a, a third a point a third connection I can mention very briefly is the, the the motif of the absurd right the existentialist authors like you no know, Camus right in his the myth of Sisyphus talks about the absurdity of life uh, that in a, a, we live our lives in this uh, meaningless universe uh, and the question is how do we uh, how do we best uh, manage or navigate that situation and he gives the example of you know sisyphus uh, pushing the rock up the the, the hill there's a meaningless task uh, a task that uh, many of us can transfer to whatever you know, jobs that we have which sometimes strike us as meaningless and he says well you have to embrace this meaninglessness and, and be happy, even though that there, there's a, this is a fundamental absurdity. And I think a lot of the 19th century authors, they they highlight the same feature of human existence. And this is a part of the the humor that comes from Klingemann's Night Watches, where uh, you know, the Night Watchman points out that the many absurd things that human beings do and say in order to prop up their lives, in order to prop up social life and to make it meaningful. Uh, and it shows that that disconnect between the fundamental meaninglessness of the universe and the often pathetic ways in which we as individuals or as society try to give our lives meaning. Uh, I think that's, that's also that absurdity that a disconnect is, is a, an existentialist motif that, that can be seen in the 19th century.
1: Um, I I I think uh I'll ask one final question so we talked about modern nihilism in the 19th century you just talked about that being a precursor to existentialism in 20th century um I know it's a very generic question I mean a very general question so feel free to dismiss it Uh how, how do you see nihilism being played out in the 20th 21st century right well it's only That's 23 cool. years into that century but
0: <laughs> <laughs> right right and then to our own time like insofar as nihilism is a i think a fundamental human problem like and it is of course still with us but the question is what, what is it about our social or uh, historical conditions that, that how does it manifest itself in, in our times mm. in contrast to say the 19th or the 20th century and i, I think that One of the big differences is that we're, uh, that development of the sciences that took place in the Enlightenment, it's only continued and even accelerated into our own times. And also that development from a traditional Christian society uh, to a secular society has also advanced enormously. And so we we live really in in a quite different world view than what the authors that I, I treat in the book did. And so the we're we're very used to hearing about new scientific discoveries uh, and that we're launching new telescopes and can see further and further into the universe and seems to uh, continue to to grow and grow and more and more things seem to fascinate us but I would submit that it doesn't shock our intuitions today as much as it did the, the people in the 18th and the 19th century, because we're, we're used to hearing this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a certain sense, these numbers about, yeah. Millions or billions of years or kilometers—it <laughs> mm. it doesn't really even matter anymore, right? I mean, it's, a, it's just so it's unfathomably large. The universe, the, 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 the time scales involved and the distances is just simply yeah, unfathomable. And, and we, and I, mm. I think that this—the the, the shock of the situation at the 19th century was greater than the shock that we might have with with new scientific va- advances mm. in, in this regard. Mm. And so we're, I think we're, we're much better equipped to to deal with that psychologically that we are, you know, planet Earth or our lives individual are actually pretty small, <laughs> mm. extremely small, extremely mm. meaningless when seen from that perspective. But with that said, I, I think the, there is one aspect of of, of nihilism which is very clear today that the people manifest uh, that we, we see on, on a daily basis that is the, the this need to try to invest our lives with uh in, a meaning right mm. we we really want to believe that what I'm doing my life my existence has a meaning it, it is important I think that's a fundamental part mm. of our mm. human psychology I, I simply could not really function in the world if I I think at this point, John Paul's right. If I really believe that every single thing I do is completely meaningless, and, and you can see the way in which people struggle for for meaning uh, today, uh, I mean, in all different spheres, right? We, mm-hmm. we have this this culture of uh, of celebrities right where everybody wants to be a well-known celebrity why because they that means you're gaining recognition from from other people for some accomplishment or some skill or some value that you have or that you represent And if that's the case that i, I can get that recognition from a large number of people then that's proof that well, my life has some mind, meaning right that mm-hmm. i am valuable that i won't be forgotten <laughs> and you see this even at the level of like the, the social media right how do you value i mean isn't this in some ways a, a cry for recognition right i want to have the recognition of other people that what i'm doing in my life no matter how trivial my life might be <laughs> that nonetheless it has some mm. value and i can mm. measure that by the number of likes that i get or the number of comments that i get from, from other people mm. Uh, mm. and the, the the enormous popularity of this, I think, speaks to that that fundamental human need that we we all really have a need for for recognition or a need for value in our lives, and the best way to to ensure that is to see other people who recognize uh, what we're doing in our lives and recognize the the value that we have, because that then confirms our our own ideas, and so. In that sense, mm-hmm. I, I feel like yeah, that that basic feeling of nihilism, <laughs> that instinct of nihilism, it's still very clearly present today. It's, it's relevant today. In fact, it, it motivates us to to act in the world today and to do certain things uh, in order to ensure that uh, we, we have a, at least some sort of a, a meaning in the universe and the. Uh, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult proposition when we look at the the science and how small we really are in the universe. We look at yeah, the population of the the, the planet, right? Eight, 8 billion people. I'm I'm just one person. 8 billion. What could the my meaning possibly be? I mean, it's difficult to, to deal with the, this psychologically. And so it's quite normal, I think, that, that, that people want to assert meaning in their lives want to try to find meaning in their lives in, in these different ways. And so this this continued struggle for, for meaning is, I think, every bit as, as relevant today as what it ever was uh, in, in the course of uh, uh, human history.
1: Mm. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us on New Books Network. Really enjoyed this conversation.
0: Thank you so much for the opportunity and the interest. I appreciate it. Thank you.